You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar, and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series, where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, Illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard, it's available wherever books are sold or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. What I shall follow, I shall hunt. Heroes and kings, arise! Now is the time to yoke valiant horses to gleaming chariots, call your charioteers, take up your iron-tipped spears, don your polished ring mail, gleaming steel in the red light of dawn, raise to the sky your storied broadswords, let the gods see how you shine. Now is the time for war. Arise to me, the blood zealous. Remember the deeds of your forefathers. Ride into battle with a song on your lips. Call your enemy to single combat. Remind them of their greatest shame and the heroic deeds of your forefathers. Speak loud your poetry, my favored ones. Make the hills ring and the earth itself rise up and answer. Arise to me, you druids. Recite the poetry that incites men to killing madness. Let the red mist roll over us all, coloring the dew on each blade of grass, overtaking friend and foe alike, until none can tell one from the other. This is the madness that feeds me, the only thing that can make me happy. Follow me, named men. Let your sword swing true, cleaving head from body. Let the heaps of Maka tower high. Let the blood soak the ground and turn the rivers crimson. Sing your paeans over the heads of your enemies. Tie them swinging to the necks of your horses. 
My favored ones, I stalk the battle among you. You will know me as the scald crow, as the wolf of doom, as the red heifer who tramples the enemy's cows into the enemy's ford. I will find them and break their battalions, drive them all into the sea. Wherever I go, I bring chaos and cacophony, the shrieking of horses, the clashing of metal, the red rain of madness, the clenched fist of fear. Open your lungs and breathe it all in. Victory will be yours, my favored ones. Welcome to my battlefield. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm red-haired Maka. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you so are the red-haired Maka. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. <laughs> I take it back. I don't want to fuck with the Morrigan. I wouldn't. No. So who is the Morrigan, Jen? Who is she? I don't think I can answer that question. I think I need you to give me a deep dive on who she is. Because from what I know from when you were doing the research on this episode... Blood, guts, war, chaos, lots of severed heads, all the severed heads, washing your entrails at the ford. I mean, the Morgan is a goddess of war and chaos and so much more. And if you don't know about her, just strap in, get your favorite beverage, and here we go. Go, tell us, Jenny. So the Morrigan is a Celtic goddess of war, but nothing about her is simple. She has many names and many faces. She shapeshifts. You may meet her on the battlefield as an old woman or a beautiful young maiden or an eel, cow, wolf, or crow. The Morrigan is all things at war with each other. Her names are multiple. Bive the Scald Crow, Red-Haired Maka, Nevin of the Battle Fury, Fea the Deathly, Benate the Woman of Battle, Danu, mother of the gods. This is far from a complete list, and all of these goddesses are sometimes referred to as aspects of the Morrigan, other times as separate goddesses. The Morrigan is said to be a triple goddess in at least two separate triplicates, Morrigan Bive Maka and Morrigan Nevin Fea. But first and foremost, the Morrigan was an Irish goddess, and to understand her, you have to understand the waters in which she swam. And those waters were epic. The waters were the ancient Irish battlefield. The chaos, the blood, the sex, the drama, the poetry, the severed heads, the cows, Jen, the cows. Cattle were very, very, very important in ancient Ireland. The most prevalent form of armed conflict in ancient Ireland was the cattle raid. And this was so important to Irish warfare that stories of cattle raids have their own genre in Irish literature, the toyne. We did an episode about the cattle raid of Cooley, and throughout it, we called it the Tain, which is not the correct pronunciation as far as I can tell. And there will be a lot of instances of me and Jen attempting to pronounce things in Irish in this episode and possibly to middling success. We're doing our absolute best. Sometimes my dyslexia just gets the better of me. <laughs> yeah, so we apologize to anybody who happens to speak Irish and knows that we are mispronouncing these words. We're probably going to mispronounce some words. All right. So in ancient times, Irish Celtic society was one in which small but organized war bands would periodically attack neighboring communities for many reasons. To settle old scores, to get revenge for someone's death, because an old king died or a new king was just crowned. In revenge for a petty insult, to prove yourself in battle, or to assert dominance in your region. According to Angelique Epstein, author of War Goddess, the Morrigan and her Germano-Celtic counterparts, quote, 
it would be futile to attempt to assess the importance of the role played by cattle in Ireland without devoting considerable attention to cattle raiding. Indeed, a review of the numerous references to raids makes it plain that any kind of military action almost certainly involved an attempt by the aggressor to secure a prey of cows from the party attacked. And I just want to stop for a minute. Cows were so integral that they had both summer and winter pastures. And in the summer, men would go out with the cows to the summer pastures, which were much further away. You know, they might be two or three days ride away. And then during the winter, your men of your village would bring the cows home. And what I found interesting about this and why I wanted to bring it up is I suspect that summer was probably the raiding season because animals had more freedom in the winter. There would be a much closer eye kept on them because they'd be in the pastures near to home. You might have your animals in your house with you. So what you're telling me is that um, summertime is the raiding season. I just wanted to make the point that when cattle raiding was done, it was probably done away from your village. So the men would then have to come back into the village and be like, we got our cattle stolen. We need to avenge our cows and our honor. Honor was at stake and cows. That's probably true, Jen. I mean, that's probably what the cycle might have looked like. Oh, yeah. You'd go out, you'd find your new pasture, you'd be all ready to have a good kick-ass summer. And then some asshole would steal a bunch and you'd be like, motherfucker. Yeah. So (laughs) sometimes the act of raiding cattle actually played into the legal system because cattle in this world were a kind of currency. Epstein also tells us that in ancient and even medieval Ireland, if one party owed something to another party, the one who was owed could go impound the owing party's cattle to force him to participate in an arbitration process. And if he refused, he forfeited his cattle. So what you're telling me is if I owe you money, then you could come into my field, see my favorite cow. You could put an ancient world boot on it and take it away from me. I could boot your cattle. Right. You're not allowed to boot my cattle. The law says that I can just boot your cattle if I think you owe me something and you don't want to pay me, Jen. This is war. I am not going through arbitration. We are going to war. That is my favorite cow. She's got a boot on her now, and we're going to war. Unless you want to arbitrate. The time for talking was before you put a boot on my cow. And this is the cycle of violence that we're all stuck in now in ancient Ireland. So cattle were also given as tribute, kind of like a tax that a less powerful community would pay to a more powerful one as a sign of allegiance or submission. But those allegiances constantly shifted, and lower-ranked tribes would occasionally test their boundaries. If the stronger community felt the weaker one wasn't paying enough or wanted to exert control over their followers, they might lead a cattle raid against their own allies. But perhaps the most common reason for leading a cattle raid was building your own prestige. Honor! (laughs) Honor was at stake! Honor was to be had! That's right. Epstein also tells us of something called a king's raid in which a recently elected king would lead a raid on his people's ancestral enemies to celebrate his kingship, demonstrate his qualification for the role, and build up his heroic legend. Epstein tells us that evidence of this tradition dates all the way back to 628 AD. In fact, Epstein cites the Fitness of Names, a medieval document citing the meanings and significance of various Irish names. Quote, This was the custom of the Ulstermen. Each young man of theirs who first took up arms would enter the province of Connaught on a foray for cattle or to seek to slay a human being. I mean, what does this remind you of, Jen? 
This is definitely the cattle raid of Cooley. Yeah, but I also think this reminds me of a really specific incident in the cattle raid of Cooley, which was the stories of Cucullin's coming of age and his boyhood feats. And you remember when he gets his first chariot from his uncle dad, Cucullin just rides off into a neighboring community and kills a bunch of people. He does. He has their heads bouncing in his chariot as he's riding back full warp spasm. Full warp spasm has to be stopped by boobs. Somehow, Kukulin is a complete hound dog who never saw a person he would not have sex with. Oh, that's not true. With one very specific exception, which we're getting to. Anyway, he had to be stopped by boobs because he was really scared of boobs. Re-listen to Hound of Ulster if you missed it. It's awesome and it's hilarious. But anyway, this was a thing actual people did, according to this quote, spreading out and killing some people to prove your manhood. But do we know that it was a tried and true way to get them to stop by just taking your top off? The end of this story is just like a line of women take their tops off and Kukulin's like, I stop now. I suspect that that part of the story was Kukulin specific. And to be honest, I don't know how often this happened as opposed to how much people thought it should happen as this sort of heroic tradition. Epstein also quotes an earlier document, which was written in 1695, that details a practice that people still did only 60 years earlier. Quote, Every heir or young chieftain of a tribe was obliged in honor to give a public specimen of his valor before he was owned and declared governor or leader of his people. The chieftain was usually attended with a retinue of young men of quality who had not beforehand given any proof of their valor. It was usual for the captain to lead them to make a desperate incursion upon some neighbor or other that they were in feud with, and they were obliged to bring by open force the cattle they found in the lands they attacked or to die in the attempt. So they're just going out and booting other people's cattle outside of the law. Look, they are the law. Right. There's no other law here. Let's be real. It's just the man with the cattle boot makes the rules. Might makes right, you know. Once they'd successfully done this, the new chieftain was deemed a worthy leader and everyone would follow him without question. So that's one element of war among the ancient Irish. Small groups of people raiding cattle for their own particular prestige and to assert dominance over their neighbors. But what was it like to go on a cattle raid? One thing we can assume is that it was very, very noisy. Lots of Roman chroniclers give us great sensory details about what Celtic war was like. Here's Polybius writing in the hundreds BC. Quote, There were countless trumpeters and horn blowers, and since the whole army was shouting its war cries at the same time, there was such a confused sound that the noise seemed to come not only from the trumpeters and the soldiers, but also from the countryside, which was joining in the echo. And here's Livy describing Celtic warriors around 27 to 9 BC. Quote, Their tall stature, their long red hair, their huge shields, their extraordinarily long swords, still more, their songs as they enter into battle, their war whoops and dances, and the horrible clash of arms as they shake their shields in the way their fathers did before them. All these things are intended to terrify and appall. Song and poetry was a big part of Celtic battle. And this is a quote from Diodorus Siculus. Quote, When a man accepts the challenge to battle, they then break forth into a song in praise of the valiant deeds of their ancestors and in boast of their own high achievements, reviling all the while and belittling their opponent and trying, in a word, by such talk to strip him of his bold spirit before combat. When their enemies fall, they cut off their heads and fasten them about the necks of their horses, and turning over to their attendants the arms of their opponents, all covered with blood, they carry them off as booty, singing a paean over them and striking up a song of victory. 
The ancient Celtic battlefield was a place of cacophony and poetry, where war hosts shouted and yelled, banged sword against shield to terrify their enemies, and raised such a racket that it seemed the very hills themselves were rising in revolt. Brave warriors entered into single combat singing songs that praised their many illustrious ancestors and belittled the enemy. When a Celt won a battle, he severed his enemy's head and raised it to the sky with songs and shouts of victory. War poems, by the way, were often composed by bards, which was a type of druid in the ancient world. They were written to spur the brave warrior into battle and to incite a battle frenzy. This genre of poem has survived in both Scotland and Ireland. In Scotland, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I believe it's pronounced something like a brisnacod or incitement to battle, was written as late as 1411, while in Ireland, the genre is called a ruscod. So I'm not sure exactly how closely I followed the structural traditions of a ruscod or a brisnacod, but I tried to write a battle poem for the beginning of this episode. Yeah, which was so, so, so cool. Like one of my favorite things that we do in our podcast is we've got those cold opens. They're polarizing. Some of you love them. Some of you hate them. We're not going to stop doing them. If you love the cold opens, then you're in the right place. If you don't, skip over it. It's fine. And a lot of times we don't know what the cold open to each episode will be until after we have our rehearsal. Yes, we actually rehearse this podcast, believe it or not. And when we finished our rehearsal, the only thing that we could both think was We need a battlefield poem, and Jenny really delivered. Thanks, Jen. I'm glad you liked it. There was a lot of severed heads in it, which of course is, you know, I always think there should be more severed heads. I'm always on the team, like, could we have a few less severed heads? And Jenny's like, but is it even an episode if we haven't severed a head? If there's no severed heads in this episode, are we even podcasting? Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Ross God, the Irish version of this Morrigan battle poem, is actually a broader category of unrhymed verse in Old Irish. Not all Ross Gada are war poetry, but many are, and some of them are credited to the Morrigan herself. Epstein's article describes the setting under which one of these poems would traditionally have been performed. And this is a quote from an older document from about 1695. Quote, Before they engaged the enemy in battle, the chief druid harangued the army to excite their courage. He was placed on an eminence from whence he addressed himself to all of them standing about him, putting them in mind of what great things were performed by the valor of their ancestors, raised their hopes with the noble rewards of honor and victory, and dispelled their fears by all the topics that natural courage could suggest. After this harangue, the army gave a general shout and then charged the enemy stoutly. So imagine a battlefield of terrifying music, of poetic cacophony, where brave warriors were incited to battle by recitations of martial poetry. This was the Morrigan's battlefield. It's the contrast between how the Romans went to war versus how the Celts and Gauls went to war. Like the Roman way of battle, like no one was standing there shaking their shields. Everyone was these tight formed lines. These were all men who had spent years building up this brotherhood of like being able to ride a horse across your shields to protect your fellow soldiers. Nobody is supposed to stand out. You're not supposed to be the highest shield in the testudo because that wrecks the stability of the whole formation. Like you are supposed to stay in your line, stay in your place, support your brothers and operate as one. I see it as like the complete polar opposite. There's no heroic, as in a capital H, individual tradition. There's lots of heroism, but it's not a heroism based on one man and his ancestors and his legend. It's actually much more based on one unit. And I think the other thing to really remember about the Romans at war 
is every single person on that battlefield, from the people blowing the war horns to the people holding the golden eagle standards, had a real purpose. Those eagle standards were so important because that's how you found your way back to your legion. Every horn, every cry meant something different. And now you've got the Celts coming at you and they are all shouting and crying and telling you their ancient stories and their whole backstory. Yeah, that noise and cacophony is so destabilizing to people who use every single aspect of their noise that they produce on the battlefield. They all meant something different. They meant this legion attack, that legion advance, this one fall back. Now you're surrounded by people who are just clashing their shields and shouting and singing poetry at you and you're like... And playing, you know, their own horns, which means something totally different. These descriptions of the Celtic battlefield come from Romans, to whom this would have been a very chaotic clash. But it might have been that every sound played through a Carnix had a meaning and the Romans just didn't understand it, but they experienced it all as this terrifying cacophony. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so the Morrigan was a goddess of war. Her holy place was the point of a sword, but she wasn't necessarily a goddess who fought with a sword. And she wasn't necessarily a strategy god like Athena, although there are instances where she is kind of strategic. We're going to get to that, too. Instead, she was believed to embody the chaotic qualities of war, confusion, cacophony, and battle poetry. She incited men to battle by reciting ferocious martial poetry. So many myths associate her with cattle and the stealing of cattle. And she is also strongly associated with horses, Jenny's favorite. Cucullin's horse, Leith Maka, or the Grey of Maka, was said to be the king of horses, and he belonged to the Morrigan. The Morgan is also associated with crows, which will absolutely eat your eyeballs if you're dead, and which must have been ubiquitous on ancient Irish battlefields because they eat carrion. Yeah, and I think that there's a real logic to some of the animals that the Morgan is associated with because these are animals that you might see after a battle on a battlefield eating all the dead things. Crows and like creatures that eat carrion, they love to eat the juicy bits first, particularly the eyeballs and like anything else that's exterior and might be juicy. This is kind of gruesome and awful. Welcome to this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to ancient Ireland. The situation is not ideal. I just wrote an entire poem about severed heads for the intro. So the Morgan's cries were said to spread chaos, panic, and confusion on the battlefield and to cause men to go mad and kill indiscriminately even those on their own side. She is a prophet of war. She predicts who will live and who will die. If you spot her washing bloody clothes at a ford, look and see if the clothes she's washing are yours. If they are, this does not bode well for you. I'm just going to tell you this right now, Jenny. I'm not looking. It's not just your clothes. It could be your stuff, your chariot, your armor, your weapons, your own severed body parts, your bits. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. If you didn't see it, it never happened, Jen. <laughs> it's going to be my shiny, shiny necklace. We know this, number one. Number two, if I don't look, then I don't know what happened and I can go into war like a true raging Thracian war elephant. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to stop for a minute because in this sort of like description, the Morgan reminds me a lot of the Greek goddess Eris, who's the goddess of chaos and who also walks the battlefield. And what she does is sort of just stir up wildness. Yeah, and she's also very closely tied to the Banshee. And the story that I picked out to tell about the Banshee in the Halloween episode could have easily been a Morrigan story. 
So let's talk about the deepest origins of the Morrigan and when we first find mention of her. I mean, realistically, the Morrigan was a much older goddess than when she shows up in writing. There's no way to trace that because it's all an oral tradition that isn't well recorded. But the first mentions we have of the Morrigan are in glosses, that is, notes in the margins of handwritten books written by Christian monks. One example can be found in a copy of the book of Isaiah, which is part of the Old Testament found in both the Bible and the Torah, dating from around 876 AD. In it, the Hebrew word Lilith has been translated to the Greek word Lamia. In the margin of the book, someone has noted that Lamia means a monster in female form, that is, a Morrigan. Can we just stop for a minute and just break this down? Because, like, the source we're getting this from is so Christian, and the word Lilith, and then Lamia, and then Morrigan are all really charged. So Lilith was, I think, Adam's original wife in some of the ancient Judeo-Christian mythology, and Adam divorced her, and she went on to become the mother of demons and monsters, right? She treated up. She definitely treated up. Okay, now let's let's talk about the Lamia for a minute. The Lamia, there's a lot of myths. I'm just going to give you one. She was a vampiric, demonic monster who fed on the blood of young children. No, she fed on the blood of young men at the crossroads, didn't she? The Lamia probably did that as well. But essentially, there's one myth where she's like a head demonous monster. And then there's others where like, you could become a Lamia who is someone who fed on the blood of young children or hot guys at the crossroads. The Lamia was the one who was half snake. Am I wrong about that? Yes, she was definitely half snake. We talk about the Lamia actually in a lot more depth in our oldest original vampires episode. Yeah, which is called Ancient Vampires. They only knock once. But anyway, let's just break that down. So Lilith and the Lamia are both demonesses. They're both these really reviled and demonized female creatures. And now you've got the Morrigan. And literally you have a Christian monk telling you that the Irish Celtic war goddess, the Morrigan, is the same as these two. These are women who are beyond the bounds of the patriarchy. Lilith got out of the whole patriarchal Adam and Eve paradigm. The Lamia devours young men. And the Morrigan is absolutely beyond the patriarchy. She's the one who makes sure your war is successful or doesn't if you tick her off. Sure. And I also think the really important thing about the demon side of it to me is that the people who are crafting the narrative right now are the Christians and the Christians would have seen these older pagan goddesses and pagan deities to be demonic because they were not Christian. By aligning the Morgan with a big bad from Judeo-Christian mythology and also from Greek mythology, we're saying that this older Celtic goddess is a big bad as opposed to being a really complicated person who's been worshipped and who has a place in the history and mythology of the Irish culture. I think the thing that I see here is the demonization of women who are outside of men's control, because Lilith and the Lamia are both outside of men's control, and so is the Morrigan, really. Yeah, well, the Morrigan has no time for any of your shit. Well, absolutely. So that's not the only margin note, by the way, that mentions the Morrigan. There are lots of others, mostly dating from around the same time period, referring to the Morrigan in association with female demons, hooded crows, ravens, cattle stealing and the instigation of battle, horses, lying wolves, and demons of the air. Told you. See what they're trying to do there. I know. Have you noticed the theme here? Other names and phrases associated with the Morrigan appear in the margins as well, some very colorful. For instance, the heap of maca is a pile of severed heads, which I just love that this was maybe like a euphemism everybody knew because there were so many severed heads. And maca's acorn crop is another euphemism for severed heads. So now we have two. 
Remember, acorns, mostly associated with druids. Just getting that dig in there, druids definitely like those severed heads. Druids and severed heads go together like peanut butter and jelly. They go together like wine and cheese. (laughs) So one of the earliest myths that incorporates the Morrigan is the cattle raid of Cooley from the Hound of Ulster. The hero of this tale is Cucullin, a sort of half-god, half-human with magical powers, who is the only person who can defend his homeland against the invading army of Connaught. And that's because every other male in Connaught pissed off the goddess Maka, a.k.a. the Morrigan in her human incarnation. And she cursed all the men in Ulster with birth pangs whenever their homeland is most threatened. Except Cucullin, because he's half god, so he's immune. They were basically suffering labor pain. Like they're in labor. And there's a whole long story which we tell in The Hound of Ulster. So one day, while wandering the war-torn landscape of his homeland, a young, beautiful woman approached Cucullin. And she declared that she loved him and she propositioned him for sex. And Cucullin was like, nah, this is way too serious for me. We just met literally just now and I'm also kind of busy. I'm also kind of busy. I've got to defend my entire homeland because all the other men here are literally in labor. So I don't really have time to like just get with you. This is a bad choice, Cucullin. You have not chosen wisely. Yes. And so this beautiful young woman was like, oh, you have no idea what you just did, Buster. You do even know who I am. Cucullin's like, well, obviously not. But also I'm so busy. I don't have time for your nonsense. And so she's like, all right, well, I'm going to give you the good threats. And she says, I'll be the eel that trips you in the ford. I'll be the gray she-wolf who tramples the cows in your direction. I'll be the hornless red heifer who leads the cows to trample you in the waters. Now, Jenny, all of these animals seem very associated to a particular goddess. I just can't think who it is. Hmm. A cow, an eel, a wolf. The eel is kind of a weird one. I mean, did Cucullin just turn down the Morgan? Did the big bear piss in the woods, Jen? Oh boy, listen, Kukalan, you have not seen a person, place, or thing that you've turned down before. Why are you turning down someone who literally has the power to, like, influence whether you win or lose a battle? Can we get Kukalan's side on this? Kukalan, what do you have to say for yourself? Consent works both ways, Jenny. It was an unequal power dynamic. And also, Kukalan was tired. Kukalan need nap. Yeah, you know, Kukalan has a point. Consent is important. The Morrigan is not honoring his consent here. She's not. And also, she's definitely a goddess and she has the power to coerce him into doing something. Right. It's an imbalance of power. Totally improper. Now I'm on Kukulin's side. Yeah, I think in this instance, like, I don't know why he turned her down, but he does have a right to and not be threatened by a goddess. Right. But, you know, it's the ancient world and everybody sucks. So (laughs) so all of this stuff that the Morrigan threatened came true. Kukulin did a lot of fighting in rivers and this was a deliberate strategy because there was this tradition of challenging heroes to single combat at a ford, which was a river crossing. And it was really actually pretty clever. Kukulin was using this warrior culture tradition against the opposing army by appearing at all these fords in the army's path and challenging all of their named heroes to single combat, which of course took a long time. And this slowed the army down and bought his own people time to recover from their birth and pangs. And um, 
also killed off a bunch of their best men in the process. So it was it was like a pretty smart strategy. Kukulin, way to go. Kukulin sometimes have good ideas, not just pretty face sharp sword. <laughs> so, um, anyway, the next time Kukulin was fighting a single combat battle at a ford, an eel did trip him in the water. A she-wolf did trample some cows, and a red heifer did lead those cows straight toward Kukulin's ford, which really screwed up his battle. Kukulin managed to injure all these animals, breaking the eel's ribs, bursting the she-wolf's eye, and breaking the heifer's leg, as he ritually promised during the earlier conversation when he turned down the woman for sex, who happened to be the Morrigan. And he won his battle, but only at great personal cost and injury to himself. Everything went wrong for him in that battle as it never had before. What's so fascinating to me is the juxtaposition of, like, this is a female goddess who's asking a male for sex. He's being turned down. Whereas, like, in Greco-Roman mythology, we don't see that very often. Yeah, that's very true. So after his battle, Cullen dragged his sorry ass out of the river, only to see an old woman with a busted eye, a broken leg, and a bleeding head, milking a cow. Cucullin immediately realized who she was, the Morgan, goddess of the battlefield, and healed her wounds, saying he would never have wounded her if he'd known who she was. From then on, though, the goddess of war and death dogged Cucullin's steps, and she shows up again in the story of Cucullin's death. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So, the story of Cucullin's death is kind of complicated, but the gist of it is that Queen Maeve, the leader of the armies of Connaught, which was um, Ulster's 
sworn enemy, conspired with some of Kukulin's enemies to draw him out where he could be killed by magically convincing him that his homeland was once again under threat. It wasn't, but he was kind of having these magical hallucinations here that Queen Maeve was sending against him. Kukulin's friends and family tried to keep him from going out and doing battle, both by pleading with him and by various magical means to hold him back, but none of it worked. As he drove his chariot out to battle, Cucullin caught sight of an old woman washing clothes in the river. As he passed, he realized that she was washing his armor and that this was a sign that he would die that day. But of course, being Cucullin, he pulled a gen and just said, nope, don't look, won't look, didn't see that, and drove on. Can look, won't look. (laughs) I mean, most people, when they meet the Morrigan washing their shit at the ford, they stop and they have a conversation. Um, that's why most people wind up dead. That's, that's right. I think this is the first time I've seen someone not have a conversation with a Morrigan about whose shit she is actually washing at the Ford. Well, I think to be fair, Cucullin is like, oh, you have literally been stalking me all the time. Oh, there's an old woman washing shit at the Ford. It's definitely mine. Just don't engage. She's not going to stop until I'm dead. So I guess it's time. It's the final countdown. So then he came upon a group of three grizzled, hideous old women roasting meat by the side of the road, and this was the triplicate Morrigan in disguise. The women offered him some of their meat, which it turns out was dog meat. So Cucullin, <clears throat> the Hound of Ulster, was under some magical prohibitions called Gisa, which in Celtic legend you were never allowed to break. One of his Gisa was that he was never supposed to eat dog meat... And breaking that magical prohibition would spiritually and physically weaken you. But there was also a general overarching geese in Ireland about never turning down hospitality. So Cucullin was caught between two conflicting geese. It's a catch-22. He's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, your family really expects you to clean your plate. You go home to visit your mom. She gives you this giant heaping plate of pork chops or something, you are expected to eat it and tell her she's such a great cook and give her a big hug and love her so much because she cooked for you. But you're vegetarian. Or you come home and your mom's like, "Mm, put on a little weight there. Also, here's a giant heaping plate of food that I've made for you. And if you don't eat it all, I will be offended. She's also going to kind of judge you for eating it. Is that the, is is that the thing? (laughs) Yeah. You're just going to be like, Maybe don't eat it all, but also eat it all. And you're just like, oh my God, stop. Oh God, that's awful. So at first, Cucullin tried to turn down the dog meat, but the women insulted and derided him. What? You're too good for our poor hospitality? We don't have much to give, but we can give you this and you're turning us down? Used to just eating fancy food in your fancy castles, are ya? Look, you're used to eating your fancy feast and your fancy, fancy castles feast. with your fancy cats. <laughs> you're just gonna turn down our fancy feast, are ya? Huh? You're too good for our fancy feast? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want our fancy feast? Anyway, so this seriously challenged Kukulin's personal honor as a warrior to imply that he thought he was above other people. And so the just in general badgering and belligerence got so intense that Cucullin broke down and chose to break his personal geese and eat the dog meat, accepting the three women's hospitality. But here's the thing. Eating that dog meat weakened him severely so that all the strength drained out of his left side and so that on his left side, he was no stronger than a mortal man. Cucullin, this is not good. And this was Cucullin's punishment for rejecting the Morgan's favor on the battlefield all those years ago. Or for, you know, having agency and saying, I don't want to have sex with you right now. This is problematic for sure. She's not a feminist icon. So anyway, Cucullin rode on toward his doom. 
He met three men on the road, sons of Catalan, who was a man he'd killed in battle. This is Cucullin's own bloodthirstiness catching up to him here. And prior to this, a prophecy had stated that the first three spears Cucullin threw in this battle would kill three kings. And these guys knew about that prophecy. They wanted to use it to their advantage. They were also accompanied, by the way, by a guy named Logad, who was also the son of somebody that Cucullin had killed in battle. So there were four people waiting for Cucullin in this battle. So the first son of Catalan asked for a spear, and he threatened to satirize Cucullin, or write a very cutting poem about him, if he didn't provide one. Let nobody say that I am not a generous person, said Cucullin, and flung a spear straight at the first son of Catalan's head, killing him instantly. But Lugod pulled the spear out of this first son's head and threw it back at Cucullin. It missed, but killed Cucullin's charioteer, the king of charioteers. See what they did there? See that? So the second son of Catalan then demanded a spear of Cucullin. I have no idea why he did this, because he just watched his brother get killed by a spear in the head. I bet there was some prophecy that they knew that they had to be killed by Cucullin so that Cucullin could finally die menace that he was. I know. I was like, otherwise, I'm like, how did Logod persuade these three guys to go along with this? He's just standing behind this line of dudes. (laughs) So the second son of Catalan then demanded a spear of Cucullin, threatening to write very mean things about all of Ulster if he didn't. Never let it be said that Ulster will lose its honor because of its champion, said Cucullin. <laughs> it's just his, like, deep voice. And you're like, said Cucullin. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Cucullin is always in warp spasm mode. I don't even know what he sounds like when he's not warp spasming. He likes a warp spasm. He does. It's, you know, it's fun for him to warp spasm. It's his natural state, really. Anyway, so Cucullin, again, threw a spear, killing the second son of Catalan instantly, which should have surprised nobody. Then Logod, who was just conveniently standing behind these dudes, pulled the spear out of the guy's guts and threw it at Cucullin, missing him, but killing his horse, Leothmaka, the king of horses. The third son of Catalan demanded a spear of Cucullin, even though he'd just seen his two brothers die. He still thought that this was somehow going to turn out differently for him, threatening to write extremely mean Twitter posts about Cucullin's whole family if he refused. He was just going to incite a total tweet storm. Never let it be said that I brought dishonor on my family, especially on Twitter, said Cucullin. And once again, he threw a spear, killing the man. But Logod pulled the spear out of the still twitching, steaming body and hurled it right back at Cucullin. It didn't miss this time. It hit Cucullin in the stomach, spilling out his guts. So Cucullin was just lying there in the road next to the body of his horse and his charioteer, his intestines spilling out in ribbons in the dirt. He didn't want to die like a dog in the road. He wanted to die on his feet like a warrior. So he dragged himself to a lake and drank. The water made him feel slightly better, but not a lot better. Yeah, I mean, his guts are just spilling out everywhere. Yeah, and then he pulled his mortally wounded body to a standing stone and tied himself to it with his own intestines. That's some real hardcore metal shit, Kukulin. Kukulin wants to die with honor and dignity. You're doing that, buddy. Good job. Kukulin is the kind of hero they write songs and toys about when he's gone. That's why I'm talking to you today. And that's why Kukulin is here today, ladies and gentlemen. In my warp spasm voice. Well, Kukulin, I'm sorry to go into such a deeply personal and upsetting part of your life, but the audience wants to hear about it, so... It's cool. Kukulin and the Morgan meet up in the afterlife. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you guys are friends now. Why not? Live and let die. Kukulin, <laughs> why are you talking in Bond film titles? Are you hanging out with Julius Caesar and poaching off his HBO? No, Julius Caesar poaches off of your HBO. 
which I also poach off of. <laughs> Assholes. <laughs> That's all right. They took my Disney Plus. It's fine. <laughs> anyway. So as he tied himself up, a raven flew over and tripped over his intestine. And this made Cacullin laugh, and he died laughing. Isn't that nice? That's kind of a nice way to go out. It's a real heartwarming story that you tell by fire. <laughs> Do you remember that time Cacullin died laughing? Oh, you don't. Right. Let me tell you. <laughs> Nobody really believed that this was the end of Cacullin. His enemies refused to approach his body for three days, thinking for sure that this had to be a trick. The minute one of them got near, he was going to leap out and stab them. But at the end of those three days, the Morrigan, in the shape of a raven, landed on his shoulder and perched there, and Cucullin did not move. And that was how his enemies knew that he was dead. The end. The Morrigan often brings news of doom. She overlaps strongly with the stories of the Banshee. She is often described as a washer at the ford predicting someone's death if they continue on the road they're on. So there's an example of this in the Hostel of Dachaka, which isn't part of the Ulster Cycle, but it's got some characters in common. It's the story of the death of the son of Concavor, a king who broke so many of his geese. So many geese's being broken. So like we talked about before, there might be culturally accepted geese. Everyone in a Celtic culture had to follow, like the one about never refusing hospitality. And individuals might have their own specific gisa. For example, Cucullin had that one about not eating the dog meat. In many Celtic myths, heroes are challenged when two or more of their gisa come into conflict, like we saw with the death of Cucullin. In the hostel of Dachaka, the king in question, Cormac, spots a red woman washing something at the river. And this is always a terrible sign because, you know, if they're red, it probably means bad because, you know, everyone has to make red bad. Stop villainizing us gingers. Anyway. It didn't say she was redheaded. It just said she was red. Just as red. But then that goes into gingers and then that goes into us having no souls and being vampires. Well, you don't have a soul. I mean, that's a scientifically proven fact. <laughs> We don't discriminate on this podcast against the non-sold. We have a non-sold person as a co-host. It's fine. We have two non-sold people as co-hosts. I mean, realistically, I clearly have no soul either, just based on the shit that I say. So anyway, Cormac draws closer and sees that the red woman is washing a chariot and its cushion and harness. And when she lowers her hand to touch the water, the entire river turns red with blood and gore. Quote, most horrible is what the woman does, says Cormac. Let one of you go and ask her what she is doing. Then someone goes and asks her what she did. And then, standing on one foot and with one eye closed, she chanted to him, saying, I wash the harness of a king who will perish. Cormac realized that the harness she was washing was his own. I mean, that's always how these conversations go. I think that the Jen strategy of just don't ask, don't tell, is probably better. I grew up with a lot of different Irish, Scottish cultural fairy tales. And it's like, if you ever meet the Morrigan or any of the Tuatha de Danann or any of these fair folks, just, just don't. Just don't engage. You cannot outsmart them. You cannot outbargain them. You cannot outdo anything. The conversation is going to go south really quick. Some of that is because the people who were telling these stories later on were Christians who were really making it so that you didn't really want to engage with with these other people because they would win and you were not smart enough. And that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But the lesson I've learned, don't engage. <laughs> yeah. So then there's another story about a hostel, which is called the destruction of Da Durgda's hostel. So this story is found in the same place we find the oldest version of the cattle raid of Cooley in the Book of the Dun Cow. 
It's a frightening and haunting tale in which another king, Connor, breaks a number of his own geeses or has other people break them or is placed in an impossible position where he has to break them in quick succession. And he has a lot of very complicated geeses. He's a king and a lot of his geeses have to do more with what other people do around him than what he does. So it's a little bit hard to control whether he breaks that geese or not. Anyway, so Jen, the list of geeses is kind of cool. So I thought maybe we could read them together. I am so excited. Let's read them. Okay, you go first. Thou shalt not go right hand wise round Tara and left hand wise round Breccia. The evil beasts of Kerna must not be hunted by thee. And thou shalt not go out every ninth night beyond Tara. Thou shalt not sleep in a house from which firelight is manifest outside after sunset and in which light is manifest from without. And three red shall not go before thee to red's house. And no rapine shall be wrought in thy reign. And after sunset, a company of one woman or one man shall not enter the house in which thou art. And thou shalt not settle the quarrel of thy two thralls. So I want to just stop for a minute, Jenny, because what we just read here is super fascinating Gisa-wise, but also tells us a lot about the people who were writing down the story. Probably Christian monks. So let's talk about this left-hand-wise, right-hand-wise. Left, left was always seen as sinister, as the wrong way. It's always associated with evil and the devil. And so to me, as soon as I saw that, I was like, wow, your Christian monk is showing here. In Christianity, there was a certain demonization of left-handed people. Absolutely. Up until very, very recently. So I want to talk also, there's another one that just jumped out to me, and it was this one. Thou shalt not sleep in a house from which firelight is manifest outside after sunset and in which light is manifest from without. What does that mean? Does that mean that you can't sleep in a house in which someone is burning a fire outside at night? So what it means is you can't sleep in a house where someone lit the fire at night, maybe a giant bonfire for a festival like Samhain or Beltane, and brought the fire inside to your house. Now, this is super important because as we talked about in our Halloween episode this year, I explained the festival of Samhain. It was this big communal festival where you would douse your fire and then you would go out to the fire festival outside and you'd bring your torch and you would light it from the communal fire and bring it back inside to your house. And you would relight your hearth fire from the communal pagan fire outside. Yeah, so this would have been seen as a pagan ritual by Christian monks. So what they're essentially saying is you can't go into a pagan house or you can't sleep in a pagan house. I mean, essentially, essentially what it's saying is that as the king of these people, you're not allowed to stay in the house ever associate with anyone who lights their fire from the communal bonfire, which in ancient Ireland would have been everyone. This is what they believed. You would not be able to go into a house that didn't live that way unless you were going into a Christian house. I'm seeing a conflict here between Christianity and the old ways, because this would have been written down during a period when Christianity is is taking hold. But there are still a lot of people who practice these older traditions. So what I'm seeing here is a demand that Connor, the king, side with the Christians in that conflict. Absolutely. And to me, that's so important because once again, your Christian monk is showing, but also culturally and historically, you actually get to see that conflict written into the mythology. And the consequences for Connor are really dire. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting if you know what to look for. So the important Gisa for the story and what happens next is the second to last one, which is after sunset, a company of one woman or one man 
shall not enter the house in which thou art. So guess what happens? One of these gisas is that no rapine shall be wrought in thy reign, so no one will rape anyone in your reign, in your kingdom, which is a good gisa. We should have that gisa everywhere. I feel like that is a gisa that everyone should be compelled to follow. Everyone should be behind that gisa, correct? Well, guess what? That was not happening. There were a whole bunch of raiders breaking that particular gisa right and left. So Connor was riding around in his reign, I guess trying to put a stop to this. So for various reasons, Connor is traveling around in his realm and he has to take shelter at his pal Dadurgda's place. And that's where we are now. So here's what happened. And this is after many, many, many of Connor's other Gisa have been broken and his kingdom is just really going to shit and there might be monsters all around with a lot of raiders and bandits just in general wreaking havoc and chaos. So remember, one of Connor's Gisa is that after sunset, a single man or a single woman cannot enter any house he's in. So several of his geese have to do with things that other people do and not what he does, which takes a lot of power away from him. So quote, when they were there, when Connor and his friends were at the hostel, they saw a lone woman coming to the door of the hostel after sunset and seeking to be let in. Oh boy, this is trouble. As long as a weaver's beam was each of her two shins. I love these descriptions. And they were as dark as the back of a stag beetle. A grayish, woolly mantle she wore. Her lower hair used to reach as far as her knee. Her lips were on one side of her head. She's a very unusual-looking person. She came and put one of her shoulders against the doorpost of the house, casting the evil eye on the king and the youths who surrounded him in the hostel. He himself addressed her from within. So Jen's going to read Connor's part here, and I will read the woman's part. Well, O woman, if thou art a wizard... What seest thou for us? Truly I see for thee, she answers, that neither fell nor flesh of thine shall escape from the place in which thou hast come, save what birds will bear away in their claws. It was not an evil omen we foreboded, O woman. It is not thou that always augurs for us. What is thy name, O woman? Kale, she answers. That is not much of a name. Lo, many are my names besides. Which be they? Easy to say. So then the woman chants a long list of names, all of them, and this should shock nobody, associated with the Morrigan, while standing on one foot and holding up one hand and breathing one breath. She's saying all that to them from the door of the house. And I just think it's really interesting, this sort of ritual um, posture while reciting these things. You see it in Dachauka's Hostel, too. Yeah, I was just thinking that as well. Yeah, it's really just interesting how that repeats. I swear by the gods whom I adore that I will call thee by none of these names, whether I shall be here a long or a short time. What dost thou desire? So he's basically saying, what do you want? Come on. What do you want? I'm not going to call you by all these names. Like, why are you trying to get into my house after dark? I have this rule. All my other rules are broken. You're really going to get me in trouble here. What do you want? This is the last one I've got. If you break this one too, then the Morgan's going to come for me. Wait a minute. Wait a second. (laughs) 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 That was thou too, desirest, she answered. She's not going away. She's just stalling for time here. "'Tis a geese of mine to receive the company of one woman after sunset. Go back and get me a friend. Though it might be a geese, I will not go until my guesting come at once this very night. Tell her, he says to his servant, that an ox and a bacon pig shall be taken out to her and my leavings, provided that she stays tonight in some other place. Dude's gonna send you a bacon pig. 
bacon pig. I hope it's just like a pig made of bacon. That's the picture I have right now. It's a whole pig made of bacon. I mean, it's not. It's just obviously a very big pig. It's a bacon pig, Jen. Exactly as it says on the tin, a pig made of bacon. Just don't ruin my fantasy that this exists. (laughs) Can you imagine the BLT you could make out of that? Anyway, so (laughs) she's not having the bacon pig. Maybe she's vegetarian. I don't know. Maybe. Fair enough. He doesn't even ask her what her food preferences are. That's rude. I mean, it's the leavings that bother me. It's like, why would I want the stuff you didn't eat off your table? I mean, to be fair, it might be a thing where kings have so much more food produced than they possibly need. Like, you remember Mark Antony had like seven boars cooked for every dinner? They probably gave that food that wasn't eaten to people who worked in the house or like it might not have been just the literal scraps off of my plate. It might have been just like the food we wound up not having to use. I know what it means is you can have the food from my table because they overproduced food for me but it's just the idea of saying my leavings the stuff I don't want just stop with the ox and the bacon pig right just stop there and it won't be offensive maybe throw in a gold crown and you got it but she's not having any of this she replies if in sooth it has befallen the king not to have room in his house for the meal and bed of a solitary woman they will be gotten apart from him from someone possessing generosity if the hospitality of the prince in the hostel has departed. Savage is the answer. Let her in, though it be a geese of mine. She got to him. That was savage. That was such a burn. <laughs> it was such a dig. It's like, well, if the prince in the hostel doesn't have room for one single solitary woman and just one meal for one night, I'll make sure everyone knows about it. That's a real dig to his honor. It's such a dig to his honor. And he's like, well... I've broken every other geese and might as well break this one because that is savage. And so he lets her in. And when he does, everyone inside that house starts to feel this like horrible sense of foreboding. It should shock nobody that the woman in question is the Morrigan. She refused the bacon pig. And also she predicts Connor's doom. She says, quote, Neither fell nor flesh of thine shall escape from the place into which thou hast come, save what birds will bear away in their claws. She's like, you're not getting out of this house, except the little pieces of you that birds carry off when we're done with you. That is chilling. It's absolutely chilling. So that's how the Morrigan predicts your doom. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences. What made the Vikings go berserk? 
and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So... The Morgan is often depicted as being one of the Tuat de Danon. This translates as the people of the goddess Danube. They're generally described as a supernatural race of people in Irish mythology, sometimes like fae or fairies, but definitely not like a Tinkerbell fairy. They're full-size magical people with terrifying powers who like to just fuck shit up. They're said to live in a kind of underworld where the time passes differently. And there are entrances to this underworld under Neolithic grave mounds and passage tombs. And what we find so fascinating about this is that Neolithic monuments would have predated the Irish Iron Age by thousands of years. And also you see these very similar monuments across many Celtic countries in addition to ancient Ireland. They're all throughout Europe and it's really fascinating. So essentially, all of these Neolithic monuments predate the Celtic people, and the Celtic people sort of bring these Neolithic monuments into their living mythology and history and culture. Yeah, and that's really fascinating. I mean, we don't know how much continuity there was culturally between Neolithic monuments and Celtic cultures, which it's hard to say when Celtic culture began or even what it is. And we have other episodes that talk about that in more detail, but those might have been entirely different people or they might have been people with entirely different beliefs or they might have been the same people with different beliefs or or there might have been colonization. We just don't know. We don't know because it wasn't written down and because it goes back so far and because of the amount of people who have come in, interacted, and influenced the cultures later on. Yeah, so what you're seeing here when you see things like the Tuat de Danan and um, the Morrigan and the Banshee are also associated with these, by this time they're calling them fairy mounds, these Neolithic monuments. It's really just incorporating an older landscape of a different mythological tradition into their tradition, which is, I find, really interesting. So stories about the Tuat de Danan were first written down by Christian monks in roughly the thousands AD thereabouts. The monks often depicted them as heroes and kings from a mythological time with supernatural powers, but many folklorists believe that the Tuat de Danan were actually older pre-Christian gods with a Christian gloss put over them. The Tuat de Danan may also represent ancient, heavily mythologized traces of the ancient druids. It's said in the mythology that they had skills in various branches of knowledge, such as prophecy, history, magic, music, war, and language, among other things, like the druids did. So a kind of origin story of how the Tuat de Danan came to Ireland is told in the Book of Invasions. This is a book that purports to tell the history of Ireland from the dawn of time to the present day, which would have really what we're talking about here is the early medieval era. Yeah, and it's also not necessarily like a factual history, but a mythological history, like the Trojan War or something like that. Or like the History Augusta, right? (laughs) I mean, the amount of times I cite the History Augusta like it's a real source, not going to mention that. It's fine. Fine. I mean, I do it as well. But anyway. (laughs) We're both guilty there. It's like the Aeneid. (laughs) It's like the Aeneid, exactly. I feel a little called out right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the history of the Book of Invasions is actually really interesting. So a summarized and abridged version was assembled in the 1100s by our friends, the Christian monks. And it may in fact be based on an earlier, more detailed version that was destroyed in a Viking raid. Anyway, this history of Ireland is, like we said, largely mythological. And it tells the story of how the Tuatha de Danann came to Ireland and fought for their place there. The Morrigan plays a big role in this story, and she was one of the Tuatha de Danann in this story. And it's here we get to see how she operates in battle. So of course, I had to tell you all about it and put it in this episode. So the Book of Invasions tells the story of Ireland in several ways waves of invasions and colonization. The part of the story that we're concerned with starts with a people called the Children of Neved, who flee Ireland because they're being oppressed by another group of people, the Fomorians. So the Children of Neved fled to Greece, and they're oppressed there too, because the world is awful. Turns out people are awful everywhere. So after many generations, their descendants, a people now called the Fyrbolic, returned to Ireland. They live there for about 30 years before another group of people, the Tua de Danan, also descendant of the children of Neved, arrive in Ireland as well. And before the Tua de Danan arrive, the Fyrbola king Eochet dreamed of a great flock of blackbirds rising up from the ocean to descend on his island, bringing confusion and chaos. And when he woke, he asked his court wizard to interpret the dream, and the wizard had a warning. Invaders were coming from across the sea. And soon Eoched found it to be true. The Tuatha de arrived on Irish shores and burned their ships behind them, just like in the Iliad. Yeah, they did. They were not going home. They had committed to this path. They were tall and beautiful and skilled in every art known to man. They were good at everything. It was just obnoxious. They met with the fear Bolig, their two ambassador poet warriors, heavily armed and eyeing each other from behind great shields. They both recounted their lineage and mutual kin down to the great, 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 greats and found that they were in fact related. They were both children of Neved. They even spoke the same language. But even so, the Tuatudanan demanded either war or half of Ireland. The fear Bullock chose war. The Morrigan had come to Ireland with the Tuatudanan and this was music to her ears. She was the first to launch a preemptive strike. Before the hosts had even gathered for battle, the triplicate goddess, depicted here as three women, Bive, Macha, and Moragu, went to the knoll of the taking of hostages and the hill of summoning of hosts and rained down showers of magic and mists and a deadly rain of fire and red blood upon the heads of the fear Bullock warriors. Their deadly onslaught continued for three days and three nights, allowing the fear Bullock no sleep. The fear Bullock were humiliated that their own wizards could not muster up a defense against this deadly shower. It was embarrassing. So then once again, the Tua de Danan offered peace if the fear Bullock would only surrender half of Ireland. Look, just half of your country, all right? They're not asking for much, just half. And once again, the fear Bullock refused telling the ambassador poet druids that they would not surrender until doomsday, even though they had little hope of winning. One of their poets looked upon the assembled Tua de Danan hosts in despair, saying, The Red Vive will thank them for the battle combats I look on. And once again, it was war. The triplicate goddess Baev, Maka, and Moragu accompanying the Tua de Danan into battle. For four bloody days, the battle raged. Here's what it sounded like. Quote, 
The furies and monsters and hags of doom cried aloud so that their voices were heard in the rocks and waterfalls and in the hollows of the earth. It was like the fearful agonizing cry on the last dreadful day when the human race will part from all in this world. The triplicate goddess, the Morrigan, fixed pillars into the earth behind her own army so that none could flee the battlefield until the stones themselves could flee. Terrible wounds were inflicted on both sides. Many heroes fell with ghastly injuries. The ground was made spongy with blood. The Fear Bullock Fort was called the Fort of the Packs after the packs of dogs seen preying on corpses left behind from the gory battle and the Fort of the Blood Pools from the red pools of gore all around the fort. The Tuatha Dé King, Nuada, lost his hand in the battle. Eventually, the Tuatha Dé Danann won, but at great cost. They made their peace with the Fyrbolag, offering them the choice of any province in Ireland for their own. The Fyrbolag chose Connaught, and the Tuatha Dé Danann got to keep the rest of Ireland. So here you can see the Morgan aggressively instigating war, launching the first attack, and also walking with her people on the battlefield and preventing even her own side from fleeing. It's also clear she has power over the elements and the ability to sow chaos. But wait, there's another battle. The second battle of Mog Tered, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, took place years later between the Tuatha Dé and another people living in Ireland called the Fomorians. The backstory on this one is that the Tuatha Dé king, Nuada, had to step down as king because of the wound he got in the first battle. He'd lost his hand, and no man with a physical blemish could stay king. So Brez, a guy who was half Tuatha Dé and half Fomorian, assumed the throne. Brez was a tyrant, forcing the great Tuatha Dé heroes into manual labor. Even the great Dagda, a general and hero from the last battle, was forced to dig ditches around Brez's fort. The Dagda is an interesting person in Irish mythology, a male fertility god associated with strength and manliness. He was also a druid, with strong magical skills and dominion over life and death, agriculture, weather, the seasons, and time itself. And Brez had him digging ditches. So the Dagda and other Tuatha Danann united to restore Nuada to his kingship. But Brez refused to step down, so the Tuatha Dé heroes plotted together to overthrow him for good. And in the midst of all these preparations, at Sawain, the Dagda went for a walk and came upon a woman at a river. She was standing with one leg planted on one bank of the river and the other leg planted on the other bank. And she was washing her hair in the water in nine loose tresses. And the woman propositioned the Dagda for sex because mama needs her biscuit. And the Dagda said, you, you're literally straddling a river. You are clearly my flavor. Let us get down and do this. Yes. So the two lay down together and had wild, passionate river sex. That's right. In the ford. In the ford. And ever afterward, the place where they had done the deed was called the bed of the couple. So after the deed was done, the dog did discover that the woman he had lain with was none other than the Morrigan. So two times in the mythology, we see the Morrigan propositioning someone for sex. One time he says no, and things do not go so well for him. We admit that that is problematic. The other time he says yes, and here's how it turns out. The Morrigan gave the Dagda valuable intelligence about the coming war. She told him where the Fomorian army would land and ordered him to summon his war hosts at one particular place and meet her at a certain ford. Also, she promised to go find the king of the Fomorians and drain his blood and rip out his kidneys. 
Listen, the doctor, like, first off, let's just be honest. He had a lot of special powers there. I mean, he could slow down time. I bet she had a good time with him. I bet he's like, babe, I know what you need and I can provide it. Oh, yeah. And she's like, not only will I not predict your doom, but I will personally go and rip the kidneys out of your enemy. (laughs) When you rock her world, if you give her the good vibrations... If you give her the good vibration, she will meet you at the ford with two handfuls of blood from your enemy dripping from her hands, which is what she did on the day of the battle. That's so hardcore. I just love it. The Tua Dinan armies gathered, led by the god Luch, who is also Kukulun's dad and kind of a show-off. So Luch looked over his assembled allies and one by one asked them what they brought to the battlefield. And they all offered something. The smith offered an endless supply of deadly weapons. The physician pledged to heal everyone except the decapitated or those whose spinal marrow or brain was severed. I mean, I can't make zombies is what he's saying. And the druids pledged to rain fire on everyone. The cupbearer swore to make everyone thirsty and deprive them of water. And you, Morrigan? Lou said. What power do you offer? Not hard to say, she said. What I shall follow, I shall hunt. The battle raged ferociously, and the Morrigan stalked the battlefield, inciting chaos with her war poetry. Here's a quote from the retelling in The Morrigan by Courtney Weber. Quote, Kings, arise to meet the battle. Cheeks will be... Cheeks? Cheeks will be seized. Honors declared. Flesh shall be decimated. Faces flayed. Ramparts will be sought and feasts given. Battles are observed. Poems are recited in their honor. Druids are celebrated. Circuits are made. Bodies are recorded, medals are cut, teeth mark, necks break, a hundred cuts blossom, screams are heard, battalions are broken, hosts give battle, ships are steered, weapons protect, noses are severed. I see all who were born in the blood-zealous, vigorous battle, raging on the battlefield with blade scabbards. The enemy attempts our defeat over our own great torrents. Against your attack on the full complement of the Fomorians, in the mossy margins, the helpful raven drives strife to our hardy host. Mustard, we prepare ourselves to destroy. In the face of the attack inspired by the Morrigan's fierce poetry, the line of the Fomorian war hosts broke and were overwhelmed and driven into the sea. Once again, the Tuatha-de-Danann won their battle. It was the Morrigan who brought the news of her people's great victory to everyone throughout Ireland, prophesying peace and prosperity to the Irish people, followed by a prophecy of the end of the world. It was a real bummer, and the Morrigan just could not, because she's the doomsayer, she just cannot resist saying a little doom. And I'm going to warn you, the first time I read this, because it's been 2020, I was like, I need to stop. This is a very doom and gloom prophecy I'm going to read. And I'm also going to preface this by saying that we are recording this prior to the uh, November election in the U.S., and it's going to drop afterwards, so we're not really sure how that's going to turn out. All right, channeling the Morrigan. I shall not see a world that will be dear to me. Summer without flowers, kine will be without milk, women without modesty, men without valor, captures without a king. Woods without mast, sea without produce, wrong judgments of old men, false precedents of lawyers, every man a betrayer, every boy a reaver, son will enter his father's bed, father will enter his son's bed, every one will be his brother's brother-in-law, an evil time, son will deceive his father, daughter will deceive her mother. 
She gets into the weeds about the father's entering the son's bed and then the son's entering the father's bed. And there's there's a whole lot of incest. But the false precedence of lawyers and the wrong judgments of old men, I mean, that and, and the sea without produce. And it's like bringing up all of my Supreme Court and climate change anxieties here. So, yeah, I mean, as if 2020 wasn't dark enough, we have this prophecy from the Morrigan. Definitely sounds like the Christian monks are showing here when she gets really into the weeds about the incest. Yeah. So I really just wanted the audience to have that feeling of meeting the Morrigan on the road and having her doomsay you. So I just wanted to give that to you all. That is my gift. There you go. And like I said, we don't know at this point are recording this episode prior to the November U.S. election. Prior to Brexit over here. But I think we're going to drop them after both of those things, right? Or at least after the election. Definitely after the election, probably after we're supposed to Brexit. So that doomsday prophecy ended the second battle of Magtorid, and admittedly, the place where it ends may be in the middle of the story, as part of the manuscript was lost. So here we see the Morrigan acting once again as an inciter of battle, exhorting her people to fight on. It's only when she starts to speak her poem on the battlefield that the Tuatinan are able to drive their enemy into the sea. After he accepts her proposition, she tells the Dagda important intelligence and brings him handfuls of his enemy's blood. And it's the Morrigan who ends the story with a prophecy, both good news and bad. This goddess stands on a through line that can be traced directly from magical doomsayers of Celtic mythology like the Banshee, magical women of Welsh mythology slain by a more masculine, quote-unquote, civilizing force, to the last days of the Druids, left to predict ruin and desolation amidst the ashes of their homeland, all the way back to that beach at Anglesey, to the wild-haired, black-clad women in the ranks of Druids with their torches and imprecations. The Romans never invaded Ireland, but when you look at the Morrigan through this lens, you can see yet another remnant, distorted and changed through time, of an ancient genocide. You can catch a glimpse of the last Druid women, their hair wild and their cheeks ravaged by time and grief and hunger, hurling prophecies of doom at the backs of Roman soldiers. Do we know that this connection is real? For sure. No, but it's intriguing to think that the Morrigan shares the same roots as the nine sisters of Welsh myth we saw appearing in the Mabinogion, who kept getting murdered in tales of Arthurian legend. Except this time, the woman in question is more than a druidess with ancient powers who falls prey to a quote-unquote civilizing force. This time, she's a goddess of war, and she's the one doing the praying. So, on that cheery note, that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks, and in the meantime, check us out on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. I mean, when do we ever end on a cheery note? Oh, I'm sorry. I ended a Spartacus episode with Spartacus in the Italian countryside, just being free. I feel like that's as cheery as we might ever get. Yeah, but the thing is, we all know how that story ends. So really, I would say that's the least cheery of the cheery endings. It just builds us up to suffer more. I ended one episode happily. That you know you're just going to break our heart with later. Jen is really good at weaponizing happy endings. I learned from the best. I learned from watching you. So if you'd like to get ad-free episodes and extra episodes because you're, you're just a masochist, check out our Patreon. So we have some Patreon members to thank, don't we, Jen? We do. And remember, we disclaim that we will probably mispronounce your name. We cannot pronounce words. Thank you, Sierra Markham. James Perea. 
Wayne Peterson, Justine, Emily W., Juliana Longo, Ryan Karen, Hannah Shea, Christine Schmidt, Bailey Peters, Kim Sturge, Magdalena Cross, Manuel Rivas, Kelsey Krebs, Lauren Shirley, Reese Bateman Beeler, Katie Littleton, Jasmine Chen, Anna Corbin, and Robin Rosh. Thank you to everybody who supported us and who continues to support us and make this podcast possible. We could not do it without you. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.